Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our eighth mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information for a full episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough information to talk about them for a full 45-minute episode. These episodes are also just the failure. No news and no ads. For now, at least. It's like Failurology light. And this week's mini-episode is about the Mars Climate Orbiter. The Mars Climate Orbiter was formerly known as the Mars Surveyor 98 Orbiter. It was a 638-kilogram robotic space probe launched by NASA on December 11, 1998 from Cape Canaveral, Florida, which is the same place that Apollo 1 launched from, although a different launch complex. This orbiter was 2.1 meters tall, 1.6 meters wide, and 2 meters deep, so about the same size as a passenger car that we have now. The internal structure was a graphite composite aluminum honeycomb support, With the exception of scientific instruments, battery, and the main engine, most of the other systems had full redundancy. There were a few primary objectives for this mission. NASA wanted to study Martian climate, determine the water distribution on Mars. They wanted to study the Martian atmosphere with daily weather and atmospheric monitoring. They wanted to record surface changes due to wind and other effects, determine temperature profiles of the atmosphere, monitor water vapor and dust content of the atmosphere, look for evidence of past climate change, and this climate orbiter also acted as the communications relay for the Mars Polar Lander. So, you know, it only had like a couple jobs to do. Yeah, these all seem like really, really cool things that they wanted this orbiter to do. And since this is failureology, unfortunately, we're probably going to talk about how it didn't get to do all of those jobs. Or any of those jobs. Yes. Also, spoiler alert, the cause of this failure is very similar to the cause of the last failure. That was the Gimli Glider, where they had a little issue converting units, and an airplane ran out of fuel. So if you haven't listened to it, (laughs) that's available on our Patreon. It's episode 7, called the Gimli Glider, and it's about an airplane that runs out of fuel. On September 23rd, 1999... NASA lost communication with the Mars Climate Orbiter as it went into its orbital insertion phase. So the orbiter started an orbital insertion maneuver at around 9 a.m. UTC time, and due to complications from human error, it encountered Mars at a lower-than-anticipated altitude. It was supposed to be 226 kilometers above the surface, but ended up being 57 kilometers above the surface, so way closer than NASA ever intended this thing to be to the surface of Mars. 80 kilometers above the surface was the minimum altitude that NASA felt that the climate orbiter was capable of surviving this maneuver that they were trying to perform. So the orbiter was 23 kilometers closer to what was supposed to be the absolute extreme limit for what it could survive. NASA is not really sure what happened, but they believe that it came too close to the planet and it was destroyed by the Mars atmosphere or entered an orbit around the sun. This failure, as I mentioned, similar to the Gimli glider we discussed on our last episode, was a result of the wrong units of measurement. So NASA used metric, which they should, because metric is 
far superior to Imperial as far as units go. It's a base 10 system, which is great to convert between units because you multiply or divide by 10, versus the Imperial system, which is very confusing. A foot has 12 inches. A yard has 3 feet. A mile has 1,760 yards or 5,280 feet. It's a very confusing system. No consistency. I'm just going to say it. Imperial units are dumb and we should not use them ever. They'd have no place on this planet, let alone in science. So while NASA used metric, the spacecraft's manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, an American company, used Imperial units. And so that's kind of where all of the, that's where this entire problem went off the rails. I hate Imperial so much. (laughs) (laughs) I know you have differing and a differing opinion because you've spent a lot more time in it, but I just think it's so, it doesn't make any sense to me. What is, like, how do you come up with this? So a lot of the Imperial system was based off essentially arbitrary measurements or things that were common at the time when they needed to be able to measure something. So a lot of them are derived from the length of something that people had back at the time. And, you know, as technology and as science evolved through the 17th and the 18th and the 19th century, like Nicole said, a lot of the system didn't make sense. It was very difficult to convert between feet and yards and miles. There's no consistency in any of these units and hogsheads, just very arbitrary units of measure. Uh, so they came up with the metric system or the system international. It's all base 10 multiplied divided by 10. It's great. All the unit prefixes make sense. You know, centimeters to decimeters to meters to kilometers. All of this just builds off of the standard unit, which would be a meter. So a kilometer is a thousand meters. A centimeter is one one hundredth of a meter. So all of this makes sense. And for scientific and engineering calculations, it works phenomenally well. Unfortunately, in this instance, since they were using imperial units and also metric units, and there was a conversion issue or a non-conversion issue, I guess, it doesn't bode well for the climate orbiter. So software interface specification or the SIS system called for metric units. This software calculated the total impulse produced by thruster firings in pound force seconds, which is an imperial measurement. So when the trajectory calculation software received the information as Newton seconds, which is a metric unit of measure, the value was incorrect by a factor of 4.45. And this was used to update the spacecraft's position, which is why it wound up so much closer to the surface of Mars than it was ever intended to be. Ultimately, NASA was found to be at fault because they should have caught this during checks, which I do think is somewhat valid, but kind of a cop-out. Lockheed didn't follow the specifications. The design specifications called for metric units, and they did not use metric units. So they, I mean, to me, they are to blame, at least partially. Fun fact, two navigators did notice this issue and pointed it out during testing, but they didn't use the proper form to document their concerns and they were ignored. Okay, just kidding, NASA. I take it all back. This is completely your fault. That is ridiculous that you can't listen to concerns because they didn't fill out the proper form. It's too much red tape. This is how do you get anything done at this level? It's very frustrating. There was a plan discussed to execute trajectory correction maneuver five, but it was ultimately not done. The cost of this mission and ultimate failure was $327.6 million. They lost $193 million for spacecraft development, $91 million for launching it, and another almost $43 million for mission operations. That's a really expensive crater on Mars or a way to lose a spacecraft. (laughs) Like, I've lost some stuff that I 
thought was expensive, it certainly was not $327 million expensive. No, and all because you put the wrong unit in to the spacecraft, and then when someone told you there was a problem, you ignored it because they didn't use the proper form, and then when you had an opportunity to course correct, you didn't for whatever reason. I don't even know why they didn't course correct. That seems real silly to me. Maybe somebody didn't fill out the proper form for it. (laughs) Probably. I just, this is so ridiculous. Yeah, it's a little different if you lose a spacecraft for something that you couldn't anticipate. Something like unit conversions, that's something that can be anticipated. So losing the spacecraft and all of the money that was spent on development for it. This is a significant setback, I think, for NASA. And it didn't make NASA look very good in, in the public eye or, you know, within engineering or, or other space-related circles. This is a fairly basic thing. When we go through engineering, in first year of engineering, we do a lot of unit conversions and just work through problems that are essentially only based around units and unit conversions. So to have a spacecraft suffer this level of loss because somebody couldn't do what every first year engineering student can do is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you have to be a highly intelligent, highly skilled engineer to work at NASA. You are the cream of the crop, but all engineers can convert units. I mean, some of them don't, some of them do it better than others, but I mean, that's something that happens on every level of engineering. So to have the best of the best miss this. And not and not just one person. I mean, this was missed by several people. There's a team of people that put this together. I will say, though, the what I think to be the only real silver lining, the only save a face that NASA really has is that luckily this was just an orbiter and there was no one on it. Because if there were people on this spacecraft and this still had happened, the embarrassment would be multitudes more. It's, it's really interesting, you know, talking about researching you know, reading on talking about these failures, because I start off with, oh, okay, the Mars Climate Orbiter crashed and it was a unit issue. Okay. And then I start researching and I get annoyed. And then as I read more, I get more annoyed. And then I, you know, I finish researching and I put it away and I forget about it, you know, well, not forget about it, but you know, I, I don't look at it for a few days and then we record it and I just get that much more annoyed all over again, because this is just so ridiculous. How yeah. difficult is this? And this is going to do some really, really cool things. So not only was NASA not able to do these things, now they need to design or at least build another aircraft or build another spacecraft to do the things that they want to do. So now they've been set back a number of years and they have to go to Congress and apply for funding and funding has to be made available for these missions. Because at the time and and still to today, we don't know a lot about Mars. It's expensive to send probes and spacecraft to mars to monitor this and then to send the data back to earth so for a for a probe that was going to do all these things or a craft that was going to do all these things and it now can't do them that's a significant setback for science and for nasa and for advancing our knowledge of mars and the martian atmosphere yeah that's a great point yeah nasa's not you know crowdfunded nasa's given grants and scientific grants and and other funding to complete these missions and they kind of just put 327 million dollars down the drain yeah they you you could say that they dropped the spacecraft (laughs) yeah also you know i i've never worked for nasa so i i don't know how many checks go into their process but i can't imagine it's a light process i assume there's extensive checks 
uh, on the ground at all stages in the air. There's continuous feedback. And I'm just surprised that it got to, it got so far down the rabbit hole that they weren't able to course correct. Yeah, that's really too bad. So there you have it. Due to unit conversion errors, a space probe crashed into the Martian surface, a really, really expensive mistake, and something that would ultimately set NASA back scientific progress a few years. In terms of Calvin and Hobbes, scientific progress essentially went boink. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>